From New York, this is Democracy Now! Donald Trump has been indicted on seven counts by a federal grand jury in Florida. This is historic. Full stop. Indicted again. Donald Trump has become the first president to face federal criminal charges as the Department of Justice indicts him over the mishandling of classified documents after leaving office. Charges include violating the Espionage Act, conspiracy, and making false statements. We'll speak to a former federal prosecutor about the stick case. Then, in a surprise decision, the Supreme Court upholds the Voting Rights Act by rejecting a racially gerrymandered voting map in Alabama. Wow. The Supreme Court just upheld the protections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in ordering the state of Alabama to redraw its congressional maps. What an amazing victory. A victory not only for Alabama black voters, but a victory for democracy itself. We'll speak to one of the plaintiffs in the case, as well as the American Civil Liberties Union. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Justice Department has indicted former President Donald Trump on multiple felony charges, accusing him of mishandling classified documents and obstructing the government's attempts to recover them. Trump is the first former president ever to face federal criminal charges. In a video posted on his social media platform, Truth Social, Trump lashed out against the Biden administration, insisting, I'm an innocent man. Our country is going to hell, and they come after Donald Trump, weaponizing the Justice Department, weaponizing the FBI. We can't let this continue to go on because it's ripping our country to shreds. Trump reportedly faces seven charges, including the willful retention of national defense information in violation of the Espionage Act, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and false statements and representations. The charges bring maximum sentences ranging from 5 to 20 years in prison. Trump will reportedly be arraigned at a federal courthouse in Miami, Florida, on Tuesday. We'll have more on Trump's indictment after headlines. Hundreds of climate change-fueled wildfires continue to scorch Canada, where tens of thousands have been displaced and residents have dealt with weeks of hazardous smoke-filled air. Here in the United States, the Northeast is beginning to see a glimpse of relief after experiencing its worst air quality in recorded history, as the smoke pushes south and westward, prompting alerts in states including Indiana and Kentucky. But New York Governor Kathy Hochul warned New Yorkers to remain vigilant. We saw yesterday some very disturbing numbers in New York City. Um, they're still, they've come down from the 400 level, but we should never get complacent and think that the 200 air quality quotient index is uh, satisfactory. The message is this is not over. You know, it's, we might get a little respite. But I don't want people to let down their guard and to become complacent about this because we have to be prepared for the winds to shift. 
The U.S. Supreme Court handed a surprise victory to the Voting Rights Act Thursday as it rejected Alabama's gerrymandered congressional maps that disempowered black voters. Justices John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh joined the court's three liberal justices in ordering Alabama's legislature to redraw a second black majority district. The gerrymandered maps left only one of seven congressional districts with a black majority, despite African-Americans making up more than a quarter of Alabama's population. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. In another Supreme Court ruling Thursday, justices voted to uphold the right of state nursing home residents and other recipients of Medicaid to sue if states violate their rights. The 7-2 to two vote came as a relief to many who worried the conservative court could seek to weaken government health programs. One public health expert explained, quote, the case is to Medicaid what Dobbs was to abortion. In more Supreme Court news, seven out of the nine justices released their financial disclosure reports for 2022 this week. Justices Samuel Alito and scandal-ridden Justice Clarence Thomas were given 90-day extensions to file. ProPublica recently revealed Thomas received luxury travel and other gifts from Republican megadonor Harlan Crow for decades without reporting them. The Biden administration said Thursday it's halting all food assistance to Ethiopia, citing a widespread and coordinated campaign to divert the aid away from people in need. Reuters reports USAID believes the food has been seized by Ethiopian military units. The U.S. is by far the largest donor of humanitarian aid to Ethiopia, where some 20 million people are experiencing food insecurity due to the recently ended war in Tigray and a persistent drought fueled by the climate crisis. Israeli soldiers shot a Palestinian journalist in the head during a raid in the city of Ramallah in the occupied West Bank. 22-year-old Momen Sumrin was hospitalized in serious condition after he was struck by a rubber-coated steel bullet as he documented Israeli troops' demolition of an apartment building Wednesday evening. The building was home to the family of a man who allegedly carried out a bombing attack in Jerusalem last November. Moman Sumrin was one of six people hospitalized as hundreds of Palestinians gathered to protest the demolition, which officials condemned as collective punishment, a war crime. Four sisters were displaced along with their father and mother. We as Palestinians are used to experiences like this. It is not the first home they've destroyed and it will not be the last. Their demolition activities are all about how much they hate us. The European Union has agreed on a new plan for hosting asylum seekers following years of debate and infighting. The new proposal calls for more involvement from nations that are not on Europe's southern coast, where asylum seekers first reach the continent. Those countries could either host more incoming migrants or contribute to a joint fund managed by Brussels. The reform also sets tougher rules for processing migrants, including expediting the expulsion of people deemed unlikely to win asylum claims. Oxfam blasted the arrangement, saying, quote, 
EU countries plan to buy themselves out of their responsibility to welcome refugees. These proposals will not fix the chronic deficiencies in the EU asylum system. Instead, they signal the EU's desire to barricade Europe from asylum seekers, Oxfam said. In related news, at least five people drown and dozens are missing after three migrant boats capsized in the Mediterranean off the Tunisian coast in recent days. More than 2,000 people died at sea while trying to reach Europe last year. Chinese, Cuban and U.S. officials have dismissed reports by The Wall Street Journal alleging an agreement between China and Cuba to build a multi-billion dollar electronic spy installation on the island to intercept communications from the United States. China's foreign minister denounced the story as slander. In Havana, Cuba's deputy foreign minister, Carlos Fernandez de Cosio, called the report totally mendacious and unfounded while pointing to the U.S. military's role in the region. We reject any foreign military presence in Latin America and the Caribbean, including many bases and military forces of the United States, especially the military base that illegally occupies part of the national territory in the Guantanamo province. And a graphic warning to our audience on this next story. In Mexico, authorities are investigating the extrajudicial execution of five men by Mexican military in the border city of Nuevo Laredo. A video posted on social media shows a group of soldiers pulling the men from their vehicle, beating them and lining them up against a wall before fatally shooting them. This comes as Zapatista indigenous leaders marched in Mexico City Thursday, protesting the intensifying violence and attacks on their autonomous communities by paramilitary groups in the southern state of Chiapas. We are asking for attacks from the paramilitary groups to stop. We are talking about groups that are permitted, financed or armed by the Mexican army that attack Zapatista communities. Right now they are teaming up with organized crime groups that are holding Chiapas on the brink of a civil war. And longtime televangelist Pat Robertson has died at the age of 93. In 1960, Robertson created the Christian Broadcasting Network and for decades used its flagship program, the 700 Club, as a platform for homophobia, religious bigotry, and racist hate speech. In 1988, Robertson ran for the Republican Party's presidential nomination, taking second place in the Iowa caucus. Robertson's strong performance cemented the Christian coalition he founded as a major force within the Republican Party. In 2001, Robertson blamed liberals, feminists, and gay people for the 9-11 attacks. He once claimed AIDS was, quote, God's way of weeding his garden, unquote. Robertson also raised funds for Contra death squads in Nicaragua and publicly called for the assassination of world leaders, including Libya's Muammar Gaddafi and Venezuela's Hugo Chavez. In the mid-1990s, during the Rwandan genocide, Robertson appealed to his audience for money to fly relief supplies to Rwandan refugees in Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Instead of carrying humanitarian aid, planes bought by Robertson's charity mostly transported equipment for a diamond mining operation. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. 
Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, indicted again. Donald Trump has become the first president to face federal criminal charges as a grand jury in Florida indicts him over the mishandling of classified documents after leaving office. Trump is expected to surrender to authorities in Miami on Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. The indictment remains sealed. According to news accounts, Trump has been indicted on seven charges, which could mean many, many counts. On Thursday night, Trump's attorney, Jim Trusty, appeared on CNN to discuss what he knew about the charges from the summary sheet. It does have some language in it that suggests what the seven charges would be. Not 100% clear that all of those are separate charges, but they basically break out from an Espionage Act charge, which is ludicrous under the facts of this case, and I, I can certainly explain it, and several obstruction-based type charges, and then false statement charges, which are actually, again, kind of a, a crazy stretch just from the facts as we know it. So there's a lot to pick at eventually from the defense side, but that appears to be the charges, and it appears to be something that will uh, get off the ground on Tuesday. The indictment stems from an investigation by special counsel Jack Smith, who's also probing Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election and his role in the January 6th insurrection. Trump could still face additional federal charges in those investigations. Two months ago, Trump was also indicted in New York on 34 felony counts for falsifying business records to cover up hush money payments made to adult film star Stormy Daniels and others. The new federal charges come nearly a year after the FBI found 300 classified documents during searches of Trump's properties, including at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. Part of the Justice Department's case may rely on Trump's own comments. CNN recently reported Trump had acknowledged on tape during a 2021 meeting that he had kept secret military information about Iran. According to a transcript, Trump said, quote, secret. This is secret information. Trump dismissed the indictment, describing it as the, quote, boxes hoax. In a post on a social media platform, Trump wrote, quote, I am an innocent man. The charges come at a time when the former president is running again for the White House. On Thursday, his presidential rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, blasted what he called the weaponization of federal law enforcement. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said the indictment was a, quote, dark day for the country. We're joined right now by Dennis Aftergut. He's a former federal prosecutor, currently of counsel to lawyers defending American democracy. His new piece for The Bulwark is titled No One Above the Law, Trump Indicted on Federal Charges. Dennis, welcome to Democracy Now! Why don't you start off by just responding to this indictment, how historic it is, and what do these counts on conspiracy and espionage mean? Uh, Amy, first, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, historic really doesn't even begin to describe it. Uh, no former president has ever been federally indicted. Now we have a former president who's been indicted by two grand juries in two different jurisdictions, New York and the federal government, on two different sets of facts alleging 
two different sets of crimes. That does not happen very often. And when it does, it only happens with people who live on the wrong side of the law. With respect to the espionage counts, they are extraordinarily serious. The reported allegation is the one that has been expected. He willfully retained defense-related documents that he was not authorized to have after his presidency ended. We also have the information that you described from the tape that he was talking about them to others and there may be very serious allegations. We'll need to wait to see the indictment about whether there were any disclosures of top secret, highly sensitive national security secrets. Uh, Dennis, uh, uh, I wanted to ask you about a couple of things. One is, if there's a conspiracy charge, there is an assumption that there are other people involved in the conspiracy. Uh, what do you make of that? And also, the decision by the Justice Department to uh, do this indictment in uh, Florida rather than Washington, because presumably the documents were taken in Washington, D.C. originally, although they ended up, um, uh, many of them, uh, in Florida. Uh, your sense of why this decision to, to uh, conduct the indictment and the trial, presumably, in, uh, in, the sub in Florida? Uh, that is really an excellent question. Uh, reasonable prosecutors could differ about where it should be indicted under the Sixth Amendment. A defendant is entitled to a trial by an impartial jury in the district where the crime is committed. It's not quite that simple, though, because crimes can be continuing and can occur in two jurisdictions. And there's a pretty good argument that that's exactly what happened here. The reason... And the issue of conspiracy? Oh, I'm sorry? And the issue of conspiracy? Yes. Uh, the, the issue of conspiracy, you're absolutely correct. It takes two to tango in a conspiracy. A conspiracy is an agreement by two or more people to commit an unlawful act. They both have to share the intent to do something unlawful. There are reports that there are five sealed indictments, and so they may tell us we need to await the unsealing of those indictments, which may happen on Tuesday at Trump's arraignment. It could happen before. On that issue of conspiracy, who are the possible people here? And of course, we're going to know much more next week. But we learned that Mark Meadows has testified, his former chief of staff, and what that conspiracy could be. Um, 
You have all this new information about Walt Nauta, who is um, the valet for Donald Trump uh, in Mar-a-Lago. Um, <clears throat> the flooding of the server room when they said they were emptying the pool, the moving of the boxes from one place to another. And then talk about how serious these charges are. I mean, conspiracy, espionage, these are decades in jail. Uh it's going to be hard for me to improve on what you just said, Amy. Walt Nauta is the is the most obvious candidate. It's unclear with respect to Meadows. The reports are that Meadows has agreed to plead and uh, is cooperating on that basis. So if that's true, major if there, then he could be an unindicted co-conspirator. Although he was more clearly, by inference, a co-conspirator in removing the documents from Washington, we don't know what his role was in obstructing justice. You need to remember, with respect to the conspiracy to obstruct, that it was 18 months between the time the National Archives first asked for the documents back and when the FBI conducted a court-authorized search in August, as you said in your introduction, of 2022, almost a year ago, uh, that recovered uh, at least 100 uh, classified documents. So there could have been several people involved in the stall, the long, long stall to try to prevent the return of the documents that Trump was unauthorized to possess. Walt Nauta would be at the top of the list as the person who is described as having moved the documents right after the subpoena for them there was a grand jury subpoena in May of 2022. But there are many other people. There's uh, the allegations about gaps in the tapes. And Jack Smith is likely to know a lot more that we may find out about when the indictment is revealed and a lot more than that uh, when a trial occurs. Uh, Dennis, I'm wondering if you could uh, speculate in terms of the political impact of all of this, because clearly for Trump supporters and for perhaps other Americans, there does seem to be a concerted effort uh, by the government to go after uh, after Donald Trump. And this the trials will probably last into the the presidential race itself. Uh, what the uh, how do you respond to the issue that uh, that the Speaker McCarthy is saying and and Ron DeSantis or others that the federal government is weaponizing law enforcement? I would say that is a combination of distraction and projection about what the House is doing, weaponizing the law. I would say that the concerted effort is a concerted effort for against a serial lawbreaker 
We do not have kings here. We have the rule of law. And no one is above it, including a former president. It's a sad day for the country when a former president is indicted. And it is a necessary day when the evidence is so serious against him. Were there not an indictment, we would not have a rule of law. We would not have a rule where no one is above the law. Dennis Aftergood, I wanted to ask you about a piece you recently co-authored in Salon. Clarence Thomas, Ken Paxton, and Donald Trump the corrupting influence of oligarchy, in which you write, quote, it's tempting to attribute the scandals now enveloping two right-wing icons, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, to both men's lack of an ethical compass. Resisting that temptation is necessary if we're to learn a larger lesson about the roots of much political corruption in this country. Um, If you could go on from there, and for people who don't know Ken Paxton, he was just impeached by—he is the Republican attorney general of Texas and was just impeached by the Republican legislature. The point—the central point of that piece is that one needs to look at the structural elements of corruption, and it's not just in this country, Amy— It's around the world. And the structural element is this. It's a connection between corruption, oligarchs, people of enormous wealth and influence in a society, and right-wing parties. We quote a study out of Germany uh, in which They looked at 104 countries and found an elevated level of corruption in countries ruled by right-wing parties. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. People of wealth tend, and this does not apply to every person of wealth, of course, but they tend to want to preserve the status quo. Or return to the past where their rights to do things were unregulated in a laissez-faire kind of economy. And right-wing parties and right-wing politicians stand for the status quo or the past. And so it's kind of intuitive that They want to capture political leaders who have influence over the economy. It's kind of intuitive that those are going to be people on the right who agree with them ideologically. Well, we're going to link to that piece, um, as well as your piece on, again, this historic indictment of President Donald Trump. He goes to court on Tuesday at 3 o'clock in Miami, and now his home state of Florida. Dennis Aftergood, a former federal prosecutor, is currently of counsel to lawyers defending American democracy.
Coming up, a surprise decision of the Supreme Court upholding the Voting Rights Act by rejecting a racially gerrymandered voting map in Alabama. Stay with us. the simple expression of the complex thought. We are for the large shape because it has the impact of the unequivocal. We are for flat forms because they destroy illusion and reveal truth. The artists were attempting to make art more than just something to look at. They wanted it to be something to be involved in. Something too big to ignore. Slideshow at Free University by La Tigre. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we turn now to a surprise decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that upheld the Voting Rights Act and rejected a racially gerrymandered voting map in Alabama. This is how Democratic Congress member Terry Sewell of Alabama responded. Well... The Supreme Court just upheld the protections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in ordering the state of Alabama to redraw its congressional maps. What amazing victory. A victory not only for Alabama black voters, but a victory for democracy itself. In a five to four ruling, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh sided with the court's liberal justices in finding Alabama's Republican-drawn congressional districts unlawfully disadvantaged black voters, a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which bars voting practices that discriminate based on race or color. Plaintiffs argued the map packed and cracked voters in Alabama's so-called Black Belt by crowding many of them into a single district and dispersing the rest into several other districts. The result was that despite the state having a Black population greater than 25 percent, just one of its seven congressional districts was minority-majority. The court ordered Alabama's legislature to redraw the map so there will be two. When Chief Justice Roberts worked in the Justice Department and White House Counsel's Office during the Reagan administration, documents show he was critical of the Voting Rights Act. But in his opinion Thursday, he said, quote, we find Alabama's new approach to Section 2 compelling, neither in theory nor in practice. Meanwhile, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a 48-page dissent and called the case yet another installment in the disastrous misadventure of the court's voting rights jurisprudence. For more, we're joined by three guests. In Montgomery, Alabama, Kadita Stone is the chief field and campaign strategist at Alabama Forward. She was one of the named plaintiffs in the case. Also in Montgomery, Tish Gotel-Fox, legal director at the ACLU of Alabama. And with us 
Davin Rossborough. He is senior staff attorney with the ACLU Voting Rights Project, one of several attorneys who represented the plaintiffs, part of that team before the Supreme Court. We welcome you all to Democracy Now!, Davin. Let's begin with you. The significance of this decision and why so many experts were shocked that Roberts and Kavanaugh joined with the liberal justices in demanding that the uh, gerrymandered districts in Alabama be redrawn. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is a really significant decision. And I think um, there is some surprise in, in the, the media and the general public because of the direction the court has been going, particularly regarding race and uh, the Voting Rights Act and voting. But I think what happened here was a majority of the court was compelled by some really clear text and purpose of what Congress did when it amended the Voting Rights Act in 1982. And, um, and then the compelling facts of this case, um, that, that this is a, an incredibly clear violation. If, if this wasn't a violation of the Voting Rights Act, um, it was hard to imagine what could have been. So I think um, hopefully the combination of um, looking at what Congress intended and the purpose of the Voting Rights Act and the incredibly compelling facts uh, put forward in our case um, what really pushed um, those, those justices uh, to find for us. And, and Devin, uh, Rossborough, I wanted to ask you about the, the, uh, the history of Alabama in repeatedly violating uh, the Voting Rights Act over many years. Uh, and what was different in this particular case? Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, in, in a lot of the, the most famous cases, voting cases to come before the Supreme Court, unfortunately, many of them have come out of Alabama. And um, Alabama's own arguments basically acknowledge the roots of this map. The, what they said was the, their congressional map has been largely the same since the early 1970s. And of course, in the early 1970s, George Wallace was still governor. Alabama was head on fighting um, the Voting Rights Act and, and integration and, and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, the one district that gave black voters in Alabama the opportunity to elect candidates of choice only came about also through litigation. And that wasn't until the early 90s. Um, and even then that that created sort of carved out one district um, but um, Alabama continued to rely on that and not look at the changing demographics, um, the continuing presence of, of uh, very polarized voting based on race, continuing discrimination and effects of discrimination, and um, continued to try to double down on the status quo. But, but that's not what was required here. Um, and, and I think uh, really... A, all of the different factors that the court is supposed to look at to determine whether there's a violation, um, you know, whether another reasonably configured district can be drawn, whether race already completely infuses the political system, um, and whether the maps are being in a use in a way that takes advantage of that ongoing discrimination across multiple sectors. Um, those were all present here, and they were present in, in droves. And uh, I, I think that really um, compelled um, the district court findings here, and then the majority of the Supreme Court to affirm that. I want to bring Tish Gutel Fox into this conversation. Um, she is also with the ACLU. She is the legal director at the ACLU of Alabama, joining us from Montgomery. 
Um, were you surprised by this decision, and particularly that Chief Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh both voted with the liberal majority? And what this now means in Alabama, going back to the drawing boards and for other states, this doesn't just now affect Alabama because it sets precedent. Good morning, and thank you for having us. We were not surprised here in Alabama. We had a great deal of faith and confidence that the structure of Section 2 would demonstrate that Alabama had failed once again to meet their constitutional obligations. We were deeply concerned that we would get a new test from the court. But what we saw here was the United States Supreme Court giving a full-throated rejection of Alabama's suggestion that we are now at a point in history where we can move on from the racist past in how Black voters retreated. This litigation was intended to ensure that the voices of Black voters, that the voices of those who believe Alabama should move in a different direction, that those voices are heard. And we're, we're just thrilled that the rest of the country now gets to see the power of people and movement. And, and Tish Cattell Fawkes, what about those who say that this ruling only preserves the status quo? It doesn't really uh, expand or uh, uh, the protections of the Voting Rights Act, uh, especially vis-a-vis the, the uh, decisions of prior years that have reduced its, its influence and power. Well, I think what's important here is the court's recognition that Congress has an important role to play in updating old law to meet the new challenges of the day. And in fact, this court has shown a great deal of restraint in allowing the structure of analysis to remain in place. The court underscored that this has been the way to do this analysis for dozens of years and that they see nothing in the legislative record that would suggest that they need to change course. What we know we need is an update to the Voting Rights Act. And this court seems to be signaling Congress that if there are changes to be made, it is Congress's responsibility to do so. We stand ready here in Alabama to send representatives that are going to reflect the true beliefs and needs of the people of Alabama. And today, the Supreme Court has said that must include fair opportunity for Black voters to have the candidate of their choice as well. And we are thrilled about that.
Kadita Stone is also with us in Montgomery, chief field and campaign strategist at Alabama Forward, most significantly right now, one of the named plaintiffs in the Supreme Court case about redistricting in Alabama called Allen versus Milligan. Um, Kadita, if you can talk about why you came forward um, to sue around this issue of gerrymandering. Yeah, first I want to say thank you so much for having me. Um, it's an honor. Um, but I, I think a main reason why I decided to sue was just because it, it, I saw a lot of unfairness going on. Um, and it's kind of one of those situations where it's like, if no one else will do it, who will? Um, and so that's why I decided to be a part of this um, case and, and take it on. And I'm so glad that I was given that opportunity to do so alongside my amazing co-plaintiffs um, and our amazing legal team. And could you talk about the the impact that this ruling will have on the work you do in Alabama and what you ex- hope and expect that the Alabama legislature will uh, now do? Um, I, well, I would hope and expect the Alabama legislator will go back and, and really take into account uh, the needs of the community and the ways that they have expressed themselves when drawing these maps. Um, I think that's the most important, but also listening to the Supreme Court. Um, they said to redraw the map um, in a fair and equitable way. So I would hope that um, our legislator will do that um, and do right by uh, Alabamians. And uh, bringing uh, Tish back into the conversation, Tish Gattel Fox, what this means for other states all over the country and particularly in the South where you are. I mean, we're talking about uh, redistricting of a map that could lead to the uh, changing of the parties uh, in Congress. Who controls Congress? Well, we know that aside from Alabama, Louisiana also had a successful gerrymandering challenge. And of course, we are expecting that the ripples of this opinion will be felt in the next election cycle and through the rest of the decade. I think that this is a moment for the partisan parts of our government to court voters to their policy preference. We know that it should not be that elected officials select who they represent, that the people should be empowered to select their representative. Across the South, I think this is going to be important, but this will also have an impact in the Southwest, in the Midwest, and perhaps all over them. But this is success. This is a victory for representative democracy. And that is what we want to ensure remains. Tish Gattel Fox, I want to thank you for being with us, legal director at the ACLU of Alabama. David Rossborough, attorney with the ACLU Voting Rights Project, one of the attorneys who represented the plaintiffs before the Supreme Court. And Kadita Stone, chief field and campaign strategist at Alabama Forward, one of the named plaintiffs in the case. Coming up, Amalia Shetela joins us, chair of the African People's Socialist Party. He's been indicted. He responds. Stay with us.
Instrumental to Dead Prez's police state. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. While the federal indictment of Donald Trump is making headlines around the world today, we end the show looking at another federal indictment that's received little press attention. In April, the Biden administration charged four U.S. citizens from a pan-Africanist group with conspiring with the Russian government to sow discord in U.S. elections. Amali Yeshitela, chair of the African People's Socialist Party, faces charges of conspiracy to defraud the United States, along with Penny Hess, Jesse Neville, and Augustus Romain Jr. Three Russians were also named in indictment unsealed by the Justice Department. This follows a violent FBI raid on the activist properties in Missouri and Florida last summer. African People's Socialist Party has been a longtime advocate for reparations for slavery, a vocal critic of U.S. foreign policy. Amalia Shatella joins us now, chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, located in St. Louis, Missouri. Amali, thanks for joining us again. We spoke to you after the FBI raid um, on your house in St. Louis. If you can now talk about the indictment, your response to what the government is alleging. Well, thank you very much. Uh, first of all, I want to say we have to stop meeting like this. I think the first time we met was after the uh, government attacked uh, our Uhura House in St. Petersburg, Florida in 1996, 300 strong. Uh, and then uh, we've talked subsequent to that, the July 29th attack on the Uhura House in St. Petersburg, Florida, and as you mentioned, my home in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, as well as uh, offices and homes of our party members in two states, St. Louis and uh, in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. So, as you mentioned, uh, the indictment happened uh, after something like nine months uh, after we were characterized as unindicted co-conspirators uh, in some plot. Uh, with the Russians, uh, who uh, it is said that uh, we uh, uh, served uh, in fighting for th around the questions of reparations and fighting uh, to uh, bring the United States uh, before the United Nations for the crime of genocide against African people and for our differences with the United States in terms of uh, the Ukraine war. Uh, and our participation in elections. It's interesting that you just had uh, two or three people who were talking about the electoral process and people celebrating uh, the, the, the presumed victory of the Voting Rights Act with the decision in Alabama. But the fact of the matter is, uh, in, in Alabama, where we saw in 1963 four uh, black children murdered uh, at a church uh, for participating in the electoral process, bombed, uh, in 19, in 2022, uh, uh, on July 29th, uh, my house was bombed uh, because of our participation in the election. This instance, they call it flashbang grenades and things like that in our participation in the election. So even uh, characterizing this thing in Alabama as some great victory for voting rights, uh, uh, the fact is that uh, whether or not you have can participate within uh, districts that are characterized as fairly drawn, uh, if you're going to be attacked for participating in what you do and how you do it, uh, then uh, there's no justice there. There's no democracy there. So we were on April uh, uh, 18th, we were uh, indicted, uh, me, uh, Jesse uh, Neville, 
Penny Hatched, uh, two white people who work on the solidarity uh, part of our party, were uh, indicted. On May 2nd and May 8th, uh, we uh, had to turn ourselves into federal court in Tampa, Florida, back to Florida again, uh, where uh, we were handcuffed, uh, placed in leg irons, uh, and then uh, brought before uh, in a cell and cells, and then brought before a judge uh, who we are told really was uh, quite lenient with us. Uh, uh, because uh, we were released on uh, something like $25,000 bail. And the only uh, provisions uh, associated with that is that we have to be open to investigation or uh, visits at our home by, by forces who function uh, sort of as uh, uh, parole officers. And we had to turn in our passports and we couldn't have any personal weapons on the premise. And if we go any place, we have to let them know and we have to report once a week to this, uh, this supervising officer. Uh, so that's that's where we are now in terms of the outcome of the indictment up to this point. And so trial uh, dates uh, uh, have to uh, be firmed, uh, but we expect that early uh, next year. And Omali Yashitelli, what are what is the substance of the federal government's indictment and this allegation uh, that you were involved in a conspiracy with uh, Russian citizens? What are they saying that your organization did? Well, they said we participated in elections in 2017, 2019. Uh, they said that we participated uh, in uh, gathering petitions uh, and doing a tour uh, where we were calling on people uh, to support us in and in, in bringing the United States uh, before uh, the world court uh, for violation of the 1948 uh, United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Uh, they said that I uh, attended a conference in Russia uh, 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 that was an international conference that where people from around the world attended the same conference that talked about uh, uh, self-determination, uh, et cetera. Uh, I mean, these are the things uh, that uh, that we are claimed uh, to have uh, have done that resulted in this indictment. And so what they've done is cover the fact that generally what I've just mentioned uh, is something that presumably is covered by First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, freedom of association, uh, freedom from unlawful search uh, and seizure and these kinds of things and said that, well, ordinarily that's the case. But in this instance, uh, uh, he was functioning or our party and movement and the people in, uh, that they uh, have indicted uh, were functioning as agents of Russia. So it liquidates the fact that uh, for 60 years, 50, almost 60 years of political activity, we've been doing more or less the same thing. They liquidate the fact that in 2007, and anybody can go and look at this, uh, I was invited to speak in Huelva, Spain, uh, for an international audience that uh, was supported by the government of Spain, uh, where they provided uh, transportation resources for us and uh, and uh, said more or less the same things, except in this instance, my condemnation was not around the Russia-Ukraine question, but it, it was around the United States' uh, involvement in Iraq uh, and, and Afghanistan. So, so there's nothing new that I'm doing now that I haven't been done. I imposed Vietnam War. I, I uh, uh, interceded uh, uh, in various kinds of attacks. I was in Ireland uh, in 1980s uh, when the United States was supporting uh, England's uh, effort to 
keep that uh, people under uh, colonial domination. Uh, so there are various other places that I've traveled to uh, uh, expressing uh, unity with oppressed peoples and, and winning unity <clears throat> with uh, the struggle of African people here and around the world. And you mentioned that the uh, that your organization has existed for more than 60 years. For those people who are not familiar with the African People's Socialist Party, could you talk about its origins and its uh, platform? Yeah, I think that's important because it should be understood that I uh, am a product of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee organization, SNCC. Uh, that SNCC was the organization that uh, projected the black power slogan demand uh, into uh, public discourse and the political uh, uh, agenda of African people all around the world in the 1960s. I was a part of that. I was arrested for the first time uh, politically uh, in my history as a consequence of tearing down a racist, a vile, vicious racist mural that was hanging on the wall of the city of St. Petersburg, uh, Florida, that depicted black people uh, as ape-like uh, forces and uh, eight by t ten mural. I snatched that down. I was t uh, taken to trial. I was tried. I was charged with 11 offenses. I was charged, sentenced to five years in prison. Uh, uh, and while out on bond for that, uh, just a few days later, Martin Luther King's assassinated. I'm in Gainesville, Florida. And uh, four days after that, uh, protesting uh, his assassination, I was arrested again, uh, this time because I said something that they said was an incitement to riot. The first person arrested in the state of Florida for a new charge called inciting to riot, and it didn't require a riot to happen. I just had to want one to happen when I spoke. Thought crime. There's been that kind of history. So uh, SNCC from SNCC, we created the Hunter Militant Organization, a group called JOMO, uh, that organized throughout the state of Florida and throughout uh, Kentucky uh, initially. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I was imprisoned uh, various occasions, free speech issues all the time for that. And then uh, uh, we came to certain conclusions that it was not enough just to have protest movements. We, we have to move beyond protests and move to, uh, toward the question of capturing and, and yielding political power. So in 1972, uh, after working for a while uh, with various organizations, we created the African People's Socialist Party. And the African People's Socialist Party uh, is an organization that is uh, uh, that was created for the purpose of continuing the black revolution of the 1960s that saw uh, the attack on uh, the Panther 21 in 1969, that saw the raid on uh, Fred Hampton's home in 1969 that resulted in his assassination, that saw, uh, uh, came as a consequence of the assassinations of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and a host of other forces like this. We said we were going to complete that movement that they had begun. Uh, and so in 1972, the African People's Socialist Party was created, and we also recognized that the struggle for black power, black people, uh, had run into its limitations as long as it was fought within the context of the borders that had been created for us, either in Africa and around the world. And so it's an international organization. We exist in the Caribbean. We exist uh, 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 throughout Europe. Uh, we exist all over the continent of Africa and inside the United States as well. And so uh, we are an international organization. We're African internationalists. And our politics is informed uh, by a revolutionary theory called African internationalism that we have developed over the last 50 years of trying to find solutions for the practical contradictions that black people are confronted with here. We have created more than 50 uh, different uh, economic development projects, many of them centered right here in St. Louis where we came under assault. 
uh, and we have suffered as a consequence of this process. We were attacked first on July 2nd uh, at the St. Petersburg, Florida, by someone with a flamethrower, a military-grade flamethrower that torched a 15-by-25-foot flag, red, black, and green flag uh, that was perched uh, atop a 50-foot flagpole. We were attacked subsequent to that July 29th, as most people now have come to understand who are familiar with this case. Subsequent to that, uh, in August, uh, a car was broken in and a vehicle was stolen. Of, uh, a, a, car, a, a vehicle was broken in uh, and a computer uh, stolen, passport stolen, uh, uh, various other things like that. The banks have now uh, begun the process of sanctioning us, Regions Bank first and subsequent to Regions Bank. Uh, we've had to deal uh, uh, with uh, uh, Chase uh, Bank. Uh, we've had a church right across the street from my home uh, in, in, in St. Louis that we had under contract to create other economic and development programs. It was burned to the ground in January. It's just been an array of assaults that's been made against us uh, since that time. So it's very clear. Uh, that this is about more than what the government has said it's about, and this an objective intent was to destroy our movement and to make sure that what it was they began in the 1960s to push us back uh, was something that was completed with the assault on the African People's Socialist Party and the Uhuru movement. Amalia Shetela, your point on Spain is you do accept money from, for example, if you're invited by the government of Spain or the government of Russia, and you're saying that doesn't mean you're an agent of them. They said one of your co-conspirators is Alexander Inoff, um, that he is involved with spawning, um, uh, that he says that uh, he's in, that the government says in, with spawning dissident movements within the United States. Your response? I'm saying that uh, as far as we knew, we never accepted money, first of all, from the Russian government. I used the Huelva presentation in Spain uh, because we did uh, go to a meeting that was sponsored by the anti-globalization movement in Russia, which is an a NGO. An NGO invited us to Spain as well. Uh, the, there was some noise being made, uh, but we accepted expense-paid trip to, uh, to Russia. Uh, the fact is that it was the anti-globalization movement that uh, provided uh, this transportation there. But in Spain, uh, an NGO that was closely associated with the Spanish government that was connected to people who were either uh, currently or previously associated with the United Nations, that were governments from Mali and other places that also attended, that we were paid not just transportation, but we were given honorariums of uh, significance. And it was an international conference. I used the Spanish thing just to show the hypocrisy of the United States government that's saying that somehow, suddenly, uh, we became uh, agents of a foreign government because we attended a conference uh, in Russia. This is most ridiculous, asinine. And the thing that makes We're going to have to leave it there, Amali. Yeah. Uh, Amali Eshetela, chair of the African People's Socialist Party. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.